0: Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. All right, I need you to uh, do me a favor, take out the post-it note um, that you're maybe sitting on right now. Um, Maybe it's on your back. Hopefully you didn't get the one that says, kick me stuck to your back. Actually, there isn't anyone that says, kick me, stuck to you. Anybody's back, hopefully. Um, but I need you to take out this post-it note, and I need you to do me a favor. It's a simple task. There should be a pen around you. If you didn't get a post-it note, raise your hand real quick. We'll get you one. Did anybody not get a post-it note? Okay, it looks like everyone's got a post-it note. And uh, I need you to take a pen, and I need you to do a simple exercise as we get started in part three of this series, Helping the Next Gen Win. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to write down... The names of three people who have influenced you the most in your life. Now, before you start writing, there's two caveats that I need to give you. Two rules to this little exercise. They can't be related to you. Can't be a blood relative. All right? So, you, you know, if you're going, I had mom, dad, now I only have to think of one. Um, that, you, can't get, you can't get off that easy, okay? Can't be related to you. Number two, they have to be somebody that you actually know. And have spent time with. So, can't be like, well, I read, you know, a bunch of dead guys' books, and they've had a major influence on me. Um, Dead guys, by the way, are great, and their books are great. I read them all the time. In fact, the Bible is full of books written by a bunch of dead guys that have had massive influence on my life. So, there's nothing against those people, okay? But the point is this. They have to be somebody that you actually know, and they may have passed away. That's fine. But you actually know them. They weren't a blood relative and I need you to write those three names down. So go ahead and do that. We'll give you a few seconds to do that while we play some weird game music in the background or something like that. Do, 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 do. Um, just write those down for me. And then I need you just to hold on to that post-it note. Save it for a little bit later. It's kind of like the beginning of a flight. You need to tuck it away later on underneath the seat in front of you. You can put it away for now. We're going to take off once we get up in the air. I'll ask you to pull that out from underneath the seat in front of you, and you can refer to this post-it note in just a second. All right. I feel like a teacher who's about to say, "Okay, time's up, pens down." Okay, and then I have to call some kid out in the class that's still writing and they're cheating because the time is up. All right. We won't do that this morning. Here's um, here's where we've been in this series. If you are brand new to Creekside. Maybe this is your first time here, or maybe you have, haven't been here for a little while. I want to catch you up on where we've, we are at in this series, because we're actually wrapping up the series today. This is the final part of Helping the Next Gen Win. So if you missed any parts of it, it's kind of like coming in at the end of the movie, and you're trying to figure out, hey, where have we been? Why is he talking about this thing? So let me catch you up real quickly on what we're talking about in Helping the Next Gen Win. Week one of this series, two weeks ago, we defined a couple of things to help us with the series. The first thing we defined was this: What do we mean by the next gen? We said it this way: The next gen is simply anyone who is coming behind you, and that 's super helpful to understand because it doesn 't matter whether you 're sixty years old or sixteen years old in the audience today or even six years old. there is always someone coming behind you doesn 't matter how young or how old you are, there's always someone coming behind you. So when we say helping the next gen win we 're simply saying this. Anyone that's coming behind you, we want to help them win. Now, we defined what winning looked like in week one of this series. We said it this way. When we talk about helping the next gen win, we know it's anyone coming behind us. What does it look like to help them win? What do we mean by win? We said it this way. We said we want to provide them a standard for living rather than improving their standard of living. Most of society, most of culture, when we talk about helping someone win... When you boil it all down, what they would describe oftentimes is related to this idea of helping someone improve their standard of living. But that's not really helping the next gen win, as we talked about in week one. We said just improving someone's standard of living is not going to help them win. We want to improve or give them a standard for living, not just any old standard. Specifically, we went to Jesus, as you would assume we would in a church, talk about Jesus and what his win might look like. We went to Jesus to figure out, well, what does this standard look like? How did Jesus measure winning? What Jesus boiled it all down to, we, we discovered in week one, is this simple statement. He actually measures, God measures our love for him by our love for others. He doesn't use a different measuring tool. He doesn't say, well, how much prayer How much Bible reading, how much serving, how much church attendance. God, Jesus actually measures our love for him. How we're doing with our heavenly father, Jesus measures by how we're doing with other people. It's so key for us to understand that's what winning looks like, not just for the next generation, but that's what winning looks like for us. Jesus described it this way. He wants us to love him with all our heart, soul, and mind. And to love our neighbor as ourself. And then he boiled it down to this one simple phrase. He said, I actually want you to love one another. And by your love for one another, it'll be dead obvious to people that you're a follower of mine. When people see the way that you love each other, they're going to go, wow, that person must be a follower of Jesus. I can tell by the way that they love people. That's the way that God measures love for him is through our love for others. Last weekend... Mark Broadbent did a phenomenal job in part two of this series. Did an incredible job of describing how Jesus invested in the next generation. He actually did it. Inc- I, I thought it was amazing how he described how young the fo- first followers of Jesus really were. They were probably like teenagers, maybe 18, 19 years old. But yet Jesus chose these incredible young people to carry out the most important mission on the earth of sharing the gospel, of sharing Jesus' love with the entire planet, and he entrusted it to a group of young people. Mark kind of summarized what he was saying with this simple statement, that when it comes to helping the next gen win, it comes down to intentionally developing and delegating responsibility to the next generation. Intentionally developing them and delegating responsibility to them. I walked out last weekend I, I was floored by what he was talking about and I, I honestly was a little bit challenged and I walked away with this simple question. I don't know what you walked away with, but this is what I walked away with. I walked away with this question right here. Who am I developing and delegating to? If somebody came up to me and said, Jason, Jesus developed these disciples, delegated responsibility to them, the most important thing on the planet, the mission that Jesus came to fulfill, he delegated to a group of young people, who are you developing, Jason, and who are you delegating responsibility to? Could I give you a list of people? That was the big idea that I walked away with last week. I don't know what you left with, but for me, that was incredibly challenging. It actually led me this week to a next question that I began to ask myself. I simply said this, well, how do I actually develop and delegate? If that's what Jesus did, how can I develop people? How can I develop the next generation? And how can I begin to delegate responsibility to them? I want you to take out your post-it note for a second. On my post-it note, I have the names of three people that have had a significant impact on my life. As you review your post-it note, I'm going to share with you the three names that I wrote down. First name is this, Malcolm. Second name is Dave. And a guy named Wayne. Malcolm was my PE teacher when I was in high school. Follower of Jesus, loved Jesus, and he loved pointing young men to Jesus. Malcolm had a significant impact on my life. So much so that I actually wanted to become a PE teacher because of Malcolm's influence. I went and studied PE at at the university. I even taught PE. But Malcolm, the big thing that I learned from Malcolm is that God has a plan for your life and you should pursue it with everything you have. I'll never forget that influence that Malcolm had on my life. My last year of university, I had a horrific, horrific church experience. My last year of university, I walked away from the church. In fact, I got to the point where I just felt like Christianity was some sort of man-made religion to try and keep the world from spinning out into chaos. Just a bunch of rules and regulations to try and keep the world in check, keep society in check, so that people aren't sleeping around and killing each other and stealing from one another. I just felt like it was some man-made religion to try and keep the world in some sort of order. That's how bad a church experience I had. I don't know if you've had a bad church experience before and because of it you wanted to walk away from Christianity, but I did that for a period of time. And then I got a job as a brickies laborer, my last year of university, and I worked with this 60-plus-year-old Yorkshire Yorkshireman, still had the thickest Yorkshire accent. In fact, I found myself translating on the job site for him oftentimes with other contractors that were there. He was, had such a thick accent. The guy's name was Dave, and he was a bricklayer for 40-plus years. Every morning tea, I would pepper Dave with questions about Christianity and all of my doubts. Not one time, not one time did Dave ever make me feel bad. He'd been following Jesus his whole life. Not one time did Dave ever say that's a dumb question. Well, why do you doubt that? Why are you questioning God? Not one time did Dave ever put my questions down. Because of Dave, I began to follow Jesus again, and my life has been significantly different. I'm so grateful for Dave. He was at least 40 years older than me, maybe even 50 years older than me. But those morning tea breaks on the job site transformed my life. And then this next man, Wayne. My wife and I had been married for several years. We already had a couple of kids. And Wayne and his wife, Ruthie, came into our lives. And over and over again, Wayne and Ruthie poured into our lives they influenced us in such significant ways. ways we, our marriage is so similar to their marriage because of the influence that they had on our lives. Our parenting looks very similar to Wayne and Ruthie's parenting. They've got adult children. They've got lots of grandchildren. But they just poured their life into our lives. I don't know what three names you have on your post-it note. But these are three people that have had a significant influence on my life. I think if we could imagine just for a moment, and this is going to be a bit of a stretch, so I need you to go with me. Imagine that we're living in the first century and we're in Jerusalem. Imagine they actually have post-it notes back in the first century, okay? They probably didn't, but let's just go with me for a second. And a person got up in Jerusalem in the early church and said, hey, I want you to take your post-it note." And I want you to write down the names of the three most influential people in your life on that post-it note. I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I want to just say that I think there are three names that would probably show up on those post-it notes a very large percentage of the time. Here are the three names I'm going to suggest would show up on those post-it notes. One of the names would be a guy named Paul. Another guy would be a guy named Timothy. Timothy. And the third guy, maybe a lesser-known person, if you've been in church a long time, you're like, no, I know Barnabas. If you're brand new to the church scene, you might be going, I've not heard that name, but I think these three guys might just show up on the post-it notes in the first century if the church in Jerusalem did the exercise we just did. These three names are not just significant because of who they are, but these three names, and I want you to catch this, don't miss this part. These three names are significant Not just because of the people, but because of the categories of relationships that they represent, as you'll see in a moment. These three names represent important categories of relationships that are helpful in helping the next gen win. One of the things I've learned over time, and if you've been following Jesus for any length of time, you may have discovered this as well, that God oftentimes uses a human voice for us to hear his divine voice. In other words, God uses people oftentimes to speak into our lives. Not just his word, not just the Bible, but he oftentimes also uses people to speak into our lives. Timothy, one of these guys on the early church's post-it note, was a young man who I think would say, absolutely, God uses a human voice oftentimes so that I can hear God's voice. The voice of Paul was a, a voice that Timothy had heard over and over again. In fact, Timothy received letters from Paul. Timothy received investment from Paul. Paul poured his life into this young man named Timothy. In one of the letters that Paul wrote to Timothy, Paul actually outlines for us how we can use these types of relationships, these categories of relationships, like Paul, Timothy, and Barnabas, to help the next generation win. In his second letter to Timothy, he wrote... Paul wrote two letters to Timothy. In his second letter to Timothy, he outlines at the beginning of the second chapter what it looks like to pour your life into somebody else's life. Listen to the words that Paul writes to Timothy. He says this, Timothy, my dear son, be strong through the grace that God gives you in Christ Jesus. You have heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. So he's saying, Hey, Timothy, my son, they weren't blood relatives. This was one of those relationships, kind of like the relationship I have with this guy named Wayne. Wayne has four sons, and his wife, Ruthie, would say, we also have a daughter. Her name is Kristen. They didn't biologically have a daughter. They just had four sons, but they include Kristen in the family, and so by default, I get to tag along. But Wayne would even say, hey, Jason, my son in the faith. Because of the investment that he's had in my life. That's what Paul is describing here for Timothy. It wasn't Timothy's dad, but he'd had that kind of relationship with Timothy. Remember all the things that you've heard me talk about. In front of the church, in front of large audiences, in front of small groups of people. Timothy, you remember all of the things that you've heard me talk about that have been confirmed by all the eyewitnesses that were there when Jesus was alive. Remember all of those things, Timothy. And Paul is speaking to Timothy because he's been mentoring Timothy over and over again. He's developed this father-son relationship with him. And you might at first, when you think about the relationship between Paul and Timothy, you might be deceived into thinking that, well, Paul just showed up in Timothy's life. And so I desperately need somebody just to show up in my life. In fact, there have been times in my life when I've thought to myself, man, I wish somebody would come and mentor me. Maybe you've made that comment before. Man, I wish there was a Paul in my life that would just pour into me. Here's one of the things that I've learned about Paul and Timothy's relationship and I've learned about mentoring in my own life over time. If you've ever caught yourself saying, I wish somebody would show up in my life and start being a Paul or a mentor in my life, don't miss this next part. When it comes to mentoring, mentoring, I've learned, is not only something someone else does to someone else, it is also the result of a diligent pursuit of another's life and ministry. It's not just about somebody coming and pouring into your life, but it's also about you having a diligent pursuit of somebody else's life and ministry as well. Here's what this looks like on a practical level. I have a couple of guys that are mentoring me currently. A guy named Lance, another guy named John Hambrick, And every month, I connect with these guys. You know, not one time does Lance or John call me and say, hey, when are we getting together? They don't call me and say, hey, Jason, I need to fill my calendar with more appointments. So can we have breakfast together? Or can we put a conference call on the calendar? Because I want to fill up my calendar. Not one time. But every month, I check in with them and say, hey, when can we get together? And then when we show up and we have breakfast together or we have a conference call together, we spend some time together, I've learned over time that mentoring is not about somebody showing up just to pour their life into mine. But part of mentoring is the diligent pursuit of somebody else's life and ministry in the same direction that you want to live your life, you're pursuing someone that's already gone down that road before. And so instead of showing up wondering what they're going to teach me, one of the things I've learned along the way that's been so helpful is to come every time prepared with questions to ask them in an area of my life that I want to grow in. See, when it comes to mentoring, it's not simply somebody just pouring out their life into your life. If you're a young person, you wish that somebody was mentoring you, or if you're maybe even an older person and you say, man, I wish somebody was pouring my life, their life into mine, I would encourage you, I would challenge you to diligently pursue somebody's life that's headed in the same direction that you're headed, that you want to head in. Come prepared, ask the questions so that you can learn from them, so that you can grow in those areas of your life that you want to grow in. I think helping the next generation is kind of twofold. It's us providing mentoring, but then it's also us pursuing a mentor as well. So here's what I want to encourage all of us to consider. To pursue a Paul means that you learn from somebody that's already learned. It's pretty simple. You look at somebody that's already learned what it looks like to raise children, what it looks like to have children leave the home and parent adult children. Somebody that's already gone down that road and you say, hey, can I ask you some questions of what it looks like to parent an adult child or what it looks like to parent a teenager. I don't have teenagers yet. I want to learn because you've obviously learned. That's what pursuing a poll looks like. Paul goes on to teach Timothy the next part of the lesson. He says, now, teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. I think Paul is subtly saying, hey, Timothy, don't waste your time with people that won't pass these truths on to other people. When you think about who you're investing in, Timothy, when you think about who you want to train, Make sure that person is going to be trustworthy enough to pass it on to other people. All of us need a Paul in our life that we pursue, but I'm equally as convinced if we're going to help the next generation, we need to train a Timothy and we need to pour our lives into a protege or into somebody that's developing in their life. Pour your life into someone. Paul said, It's not complicated, Timothy. Do you remember the things that you heard me talk about in front of a lot of witnesses? I want you to take those same truths, Timothy, and I want you just to pass them on to somebody else. You don't even have to come up with your own stuff. You don't have to make anything up. You don't have to discover some new thought or truth. Just simply take the truths that you've heard me tell you and pour them into somebody else. That's what training a Timothy looks like. That's what helping the next generation looks like. This third name that's on the list in the first first century church's post-it note is a name called Barnabas. His name, Barnabas, is a significant figure in the early church. In fact, I'm convinced that if it wasn't for Barnabas, it's quite possible we wouldn't have two-thirds of the New Testament. If it wasn't for Barnabas in the early church, Paul most likely wouldn't have gone on to do the incredible ministry that he did. You say, Jason, how can you make such a big statement? If it wasn't for this obscure guy named Barnabas, then Paul wouldn't have done all of the work that he did. How can you make such a grand statement like that? When we first meet Paul and and Timothy and their relationship with each other is in the first century, first church in Jerusalem. And in the book of Acts, Luke one of the eyewitnesses who recorded everything that happened in the early church, he records for us this interaction with Paul and Barnabas in the early church. We find Paul, Luke starts, he says, when he, Paul, came to Jerusalem, this is right after Paul became a follower of Jesus, he tried to join the disciples. Or in other words, he tried to join the church in Jerusalem, the very first church. But they were all afraid of him. If you have any history of Paul's life, you would understand they were all deathly afraid of him because he had been putting to death all of the followers of Jesus. Up until Paul became a follower of Jesus, he spent his whole life trying to eliminate this new religion of Christianity in Jerusalem. That was what his goal was. So all of a sudden, he has this experience. He begins to follow Jesus. He rocks up at church, and everyone's supposed to say, oh, welcome, Paul. Paul. You killed my uncle for following Jesus. Come on in. You put my aunt in prison. My mom and dad are no longer with us because you persecuted them. Come on in. You had this amazing experience. When Paul first rocked up at the church in Jerusalem, he wasn't welcomed with open arms. In fact, they were fearful genuinely for their lives because of Paul's reputation. Goes on, he says, they were all afraid of him. Sorry, go back to the, next, the first verse. Not believing that he really was a disciple. They weren't convinced that Paul truly had been converted. And so because of that, they were pretty standoffish. Some of you maybe have had a church experience like that. In fact, that might be the reason why you don't go to church on a regular basis. I'll be the first to admit. I'll take one for the team. Us Christians, we're not always the most welcoming bunch of people if we're honest. When somebody starts following Jesus, we sometimes are even a little skeptical. Really? I remember Bob before he started following Jesus a couple of weeks ago. I remember Sue. I remember Sally. Are you sure they've started following Jesus? We're not always the most welcoming bunch of people. And that's exactly the experience that Paul had when he came to the church in Jerusalem. I think there's a lesson just in that for all of us. Here's the lesson, though. Barnabas, in the first church, he sees this happening to Paul. Luke carries on, he says in the next verse, but Barnabas took him, Paul, and brought him to the apostles, the leaders of the church, who maybe were a little skeptical about Paul, and rightly so. And he told them how Saul... Paul's name eventually, uh, sorry, Saul's name would eventually become Paul. Told him how Saul on his journey to Damascus had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. You know what Barnabas did? Barnabas did something that I think is of incredible value for all of us to understand. When Paul was facing discouragement, When Paul was facing a challenge, even from the leaders of the church, Barnabas came to Paul's defense. Barnabas came to Paul and said, Hey, I'll go on your behalf. I'll come to your defense, Paul. I know that there are a lot of people that are skeptical about you. I know there are a lot of people that are still questioning are you really a follower of Jesus? Because you used to persecute all the Jesus followers. Barnabas knew all of those things. And yet he said, when you're facing discouragement, Paul, when you're facing opposition, when you're facing a challenge, Paul, I'm your guy. I've got your back. I'll encourage you. I'll come to your defense. And that's exactly what Barnabas did on Paul's behalf in that early church in Jerusalem. Look what happened because Paul was defended by Barnabas. Look at what Barnabas' actions translated to into Paul's life. It says, because of that, so Saul stayed there in Jerusalem with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. I wonder, is it possible that if Barnabas hadn't come to Paul's defense, that we wouldn't have all these letters that we get to read from Paul's life? Is it possible that if Barnabas hadn't stepped up and encouraged Paul in that moment of discouragement, in that moment of opposition, is it possible that Paul wouldn't have gone on to do the incredible ministry that God used him to do? We talk about this amazing guy, Paul, who God used to take the message of Jesus to the entire world. And we're all sitting here today because of his ministry. Is it possible that without Barnabas... We wouldn't have that story to tell. Is it possible that when you sit down with someone that's discouraged, facing a challenge, and you ask the simple question, are you okay? It could change the story of somebody's life. It could change generations. Just by being an encouragement, by being a Barnabas to somebody, by coming to their defense, is it possible it could change the trajectory of somebody's life? I'm convinced it could. When it comes to these relationships of helping the next generation win, not only do we need to pursue a Paul, someone that will pour their life into us and mentor us, not only do we need to train a Timothy and take the things we've learned and pass it on to other people, but I'm convinced we need to be a Barnabas who encourages the discouraged. These are the kinds of relationships that I'm convinced will help the next generation win. All of these relationships... They didn't happen because of some human choreographing. These were all what I put in the category of providential relationships, simply meaning this, they involved divine foresight and intervention. Paul and Timothy's relationship, God orchestrated that. Barnabas's relationship with Paul, God orchestrated that. But here's what I've learned about providential relationships. Although God orchestrates them, they also involve human responsibility. See, Barnabas had a choice. He could have seen Paul and the opposition that he was facing in Jerusalem and said, ah, you know what? The apostles can be kind of crotchety sometimes. (laughs) Those group of people are not very welcoming, but he'll figure it out. Barnabas could have said, no, I'm not going to get involved. Paul could have said, well, I'm not going to then train Timothy. But what I've discovered is that providential relationships, although God orchestrates them, They also involve human responsibility. Here's what that human responsibility looks like. Here's what helping the next generation looks like. It involves this. It's placing yourself in positions of greatest potential for a providential relationship to occur. It's saying, hey, I'm going to put myself in places which have the maximum potential for God to use me in somebody else's life. I'll show you where this plays out every Sunday morning. In fact, right now, on the other side of that wall, we have people that have chosen to place themselves in a position where maximum potential can occur so that God can use them to help the next generation win. They're serving our children right now. They said weeks ago, some of them months ago, some of them years ago, hey, I'm gonna put my hand up and I'm gonna put myself Every Sunday or every other Sunday or once a month, I'm going to put myself in a place where God can use me to impact the life of the next generation. That's what this looks like. Yes, God orchestrates these relationships, but every providential relationship also includes some human responsibility. Somebody saying, I'm going to put myself in a place that provides maximum potential for God to use my life. So, I want to boil this down to just one simple statement, just two words. When it comes to helping the next generation win, it's kind of hard to remember. Putting myself into places, maximum potential. There's a lot of Ps in that statement. And I can't even remember what Jason was talking about. Let me boil it down to just two words. Helping the next generation looks like this. Just show up. Just show up. I bet Timothy, if he were here today, he'd be like, you know what? I'm so glad Paul just showed up and he did it again. And then he showed up again. He just kept showing up. Wasn't something super magical about Paul. He wasn't some sort of genius that had these big truths that I'd never heard of before. He just kept showing up over and over and over again. Helping the next generation win. Just show up. Put yourself in a position that places you in maximum potential for God to use you to impact the next generation. This past Wednesday morning, I showed up at the airport and I picked up these three friends of my son, Xavier, and I took them out for breakfast. Here's a picture of us out having breakfast. Today, in exactly three hours from now, all four of them, will enroll at a Bible school down in New South Wales. And I'm just so pumped for them. Here's what you don't know. Please don't miss this. Look over here real quick. I sat at a table with them on Wednesday morning. But what you don't know is there's a guy named Chuck who every Sunday since these four guys were in eighth grade showed up and sat at a table with them Every Sunday afternoon. You want to know who they would have written down on their post-it note? His name's Chuck. And they're going down to see what God wants to do with their life. Because Chuck just showed up. If Chuck were here today, Chuck would say to you, you know what? I, I didn't do anything special. In fact, I don't even remember the Bible studies we did. I don't remember half the things we talked about. I just showed up. You want to help the next generation win? Just show up. It'll be amazing what God does when you put yourself in a position for maximum potential for God to use you. We've got all sorts of opportunities for people here at our church to just show up. Just show up for Lighthouse. On a Friday night, we have a bunch of students, high school students that come. Just show up. We'll plug you in. We'll introduce you to a bunch of them. You might even discover you want to go out and have lunch with them every Sunday, like Chuck. And then years from now, they're sitting in a church. Somebody asks them, would you write down on the post-it note the three names of the people that have influenced you the most? And they write your name down. The example that we have and the reason why we know that just showing up is so powerful is because that's what Jesus did for us. In just a minute, the band's gonna come and we're gonna sing a song and there's a line in this song. Simply says this, Jesus, you didn't want heaven without us. So Jesus, you brought heaven down. That's the story of Christianity. God showing up for us. He just showed up in a manger of all places. And then he showed up on a cross for us. So that we could have a life for, with him for all of eternity. God showed up for us. That's the thing that compels us to show up and help the next generation win. So let me ask you a question as we wrap up today. Who, whose post it note has your name on it? Or maybe five years from now, or 10 years from now, somebody's asked, write down the three names of the person that's been most influential in your life. Who would write your name down on their post-it note? This is not a question for older people or younger people or middle people. It's just a people question. It's for all of us to answer. Who would write your name down on their post-it note? Just show up. It's pretty simple. When we show up, we're simply doing this. We're placing ourselves in positions of greatest potential for providential relationships to occur. We're simply putting ourselves in a place where God can use us to impact the next generation. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, thank you so much. Firstly, that you showed up for us. God, thank you that you showed up for us in our greatest time of need, God, thank you that you showed up for us through the person of Jesus. You showed up for us when we were lost without hope, when we were dead in our sins, when we had no chance of having a relationship with you. You showed up for us through the person of Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection. Thank you for showing up for us. God, I thank you for Malcolm and Dave and Wayne and so many other people who have showed up for me time after time again. God, I pray personally, and I pray on behalf of everyone in this room, follower of Jesus, not a follower of Jesus, God, I pray for all of us that we would understand the importance of helping the next generation win and how showing up could do that in somebody's life. God, I pray that you would help us to understand this truth, and I pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.